Good morning, it's Leanne Scott from the Profitable Podcast by Chirp. With me today, I have Brennan Schmidt, and we are super excited to talk all things AI, chat GPT, and business. Brennan, why don't we start with you giving a little bit of an introduction to who you are, what you work on, and where what your journey has been so far. You bet. It's really great to be here, and, and thanks so much for the invite. So my name is, is Brennan Schmidt. I'm here in uh, Regina, Saskatchewan in Canada, and I'm an author and speaker, and I largely focus on cybersecurity, but there's definitely been a lot of demand for talks here in terms of uh, chatting about ChatGPT and, and all that's happening in, in artificial intelligence. Uh, just a little really quick recap in terms of where I crossed paths with, with ChatGPT, I think it was around this time last year when I heard rumblings of this thing called ChatGPT, and so I was paying attention to it a little bit, but it was only really in, in kind of that January timeframe that, that I actually got, got my account and really started diving into it. And ever since that time, we've just seen an absolutely exponential rise in not only its popularity, but also just the rich features that ChatGPT has that I'm really excited that we're able to dive into here. Amazing. Amazing. So you said you're an author. What book have you written? So I co-authored Cyber City Safe, Emergency Planning Beyond the Maginot Line. And that is just over my shoulder there. Uh, it might be a little bit blurred, but uh, Cyber City Safe is, is uh, co-authored work that I worked with uh, three other authors on. And really what we wanted to do is we wanted to explore emergency planning crisis response and really urban planning. I know those are a lot of different pieces to it, um, but it just really stems from an, an interest that I have just in terms of preparedness and trying to see if we can use technologies like AI as an example to see if we can lead uh, safe, safer, happier and healthier lives. Amazing, amazing. Obviously that's a lot to do with cybersecurity. Do you come at, do you think of ChatGPT from a, security point of view, or how do you use ChatGPT mostly? That's a great question. And ChatGPT certainly has a lot of features. Uh, at the same time, I think it's equally important to point out that there's uh, a huge focus that I think everyone should be putting into and just being really weary of the kind of information that goes into ChatGPT and similar services like it. And I say that not to raise fear, but it's just that we have so much data that, that we go through that uh, in a lot of cases, as these services start working with each other and integrating with each other, it's just so important for us to be mindful of what kind of information that we put in there, especially if it's got personally identifiable information, personal health information, that kind of stuff. That's some very sensitive data that you as an individual need to make sure that you're treating with the utmost care and attention. What about like from a IP point of view? So I, we use ChatGPT a lot in terms of our content production and then also writing copy for sales pages and landing pages. So in order to do that, you've got to put a lot of information in about to develop your brand voice and make it work for you. You've got to put a lot of information about your um, target audience and your offer and your like intimate, almost intimate details of your ideal customer in terms of age and names and what they do and who they are and that. And it occurs to me that sometimes when I'm doing that, like how there's millions of people using it, but how much information is being reused 
that we input into ChatGPT? That's a great question. And I think bubbles up to a larger question in terms of how these services are really using our information. So that's why I think that it's so important that becomes really clear with these services, not just with OpenAI and ChatGPT, but with others that, that are integrating with, uh, with those kinds of services over time. But just as a, as something for folks to maybe focus on going forward here is if there is the ability for you to maybe take out some of that information before you actually put it into ChatGPT, probably a good idea, especially if you're doing that. Although that's not to say that there can't be some circumstances as an example with, if you're on the Microsoft suite with, with Microsoft Azure's OpenAI, that's actually its own locked in sort of box. If you want to think of it that way for ChatGPT, which has a whole completely different way of, uh, of storing that information and effectively locking it into its own little box where it's made very clear that's your information. You're still using the really cool functions of, of ChatGPT, but it's limited to uh, a specific scope of, of what's being used and you have a lot more control over it, mm -hmm. as opposed to let's say something that's a little bit more in, in the more public domain, where we're talking about ChatGPT proper, where you see the chat interface in, in the middle and you're typing things in, and then on the left, there's that tray. Um, we're used to that with ChatGPT. If we're using something within Microsoft Azure, and if folks tuning in here are using Microsoft Azure, that might be something to explore, especially if you have a lot more sensitive data. Mm -hmm. And so do you think that, do you think that with the kind of dawn of ChatGPT and AI tools like that, we're all quite excited about using them, that we've become a little bit blasé around the security aspect? Yeah, and it's a huge concern, especially, and, and I think this applies not just to small and medium-sized businesses, but also too, if we think over here with large enterprises, uh, especially in the circles that, that I chat with uh, on a regular basis, that's a huge concern because in some cases, there's either a complete block on ChatGPT and just as a way of, of mitigating risk is to make it so that it's not available. Of course, folks likely will find ways around that, right? Like we have these things <laughs> called phones and it's easy enough to type something into the phone or talk to it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Unless if you're leaving the, the phones off the work site, right? Or, or at home, it's going to be very difficult to stop that, right? Really what it comes down to is just, I think, awareness, right? So I, I think let's be optimistic here. We've got a really cool technology. You and I are both using it. A lot of your listeners yeah. are, are adopting it. But I think it's, it's just really important for us to start thinking about the information that we're putting in there and just really making sure that we're being custodians of that information and, and treating it with the care and attention that it deserves. Amazing. So in terms of working with customers and that, where, how do you work with your clients? Do you work primarily on the security side of things or you spoke about emergency planning? So tell us a little bit more about what do you do? <laughs> You bet. So as far as consulting, the, the funny thing about consulting is that if you follow the memes on Instagram, it's largely, it depends. So it's, so what's cool about my job in, in consulting is that there's been a wide array of different customers that I've worked with, whether or not it's in healthcare, in agriculture, in energy and resources, there's just a huge array of, of customers that I've worked with and really their needs are all based off of technology. And what I think is really cool about consulting specifically is being able to really get an understanding of what it is that the problem is, is happening with the customer and just really work with them 
to get an understanding of what it is. And so like you mentioned, there's a whole bunch of different domains that I float between. Definitely when it comes to uh, emergency planning, I, I did quite a bit of work um, in communications at uh, one point in time. And a lot of that was focused on crisis communications and response. So there's that area. And then when we talk about cybersecurity, there's a whole bunch of different areas that fall under that, whether or not it comes to uh, governance, risk, compliance, um, and just even seeing how we can get the dialogue going about what cybersecurity is. And, and lastly, the, the other component too is just really road mapping and working with, with people and companies to just really understand where they are in their technology journey and really where they want to be. Because I think it's important for us to consider that part about where folks are and where they want to be, because that delta in between is just so important in understanding and working with all these different stakeholders. And the, the last thing that comes to mind with that is something that I think is, is often overlooked when it comes to technology. And it really is this whole idea of organizational change management. If, if that's a little bit of a different term, or if, if folks have heard about change management, that's certainly important in software. But I think what's also important too, and in a large degree of, of what I find myself doing even today when we're talking about things like ChatGPT, is this whole idea behind adoption and, and really making that a, a change management exercise where, as the adage goes, it's not organizations that actually change, it's people because people form organizations. If we can do everything that we can to equip people and contributors and team members with the knowledge that they need to succeed, that's how we can see the organization succeeding. And that's really what I've seen over the course of my time in consulting. So do you find that there's like a real mindset element around managing the people through change process. I know I've come across people who hate change. And then there's another school of people who absolutely hate predictability. So like in terms of managing that mindset and bringing people along for the journey, how do you tackle that one? Oh, that's a great question. It all comes down to stakeholder identification and, and personality types. That's just so important. I know a lot of cases, folks are just like, you send the email or you send the communication and, and it should be done. And hopefully folks can live with it. But at the same time, true transformation, I think, is really in cases when we really understand what the needs are of our users. So those familiar with human-centered design, that's a huge component of change. But perhaps more importantly than that, too, when it comes to mindset to your question, I think it comes down to leadership. And that role that not only executive sponsors at, at the at the leading edge of, of a change initiative play, but also to individual contributors. You don't have to be an AVP and an SVP to help lead change within your organization. Each member of, of a team has that mindset that they can adopt to really be that change agent that can help lead to some ripple effects across the organizations. Love, love nerding about change. And I think that it's just something that's so important and something that often is overlooked. And to your point about mindset, mindset's a huge component of it. Accessibility is just so key. Mm. So I'm, I'm wondering whether every, everybody went through the pandemic and some of the good that came out of the pandemic is that a lot of change was accelerated. For me, I had worked from home remotely for many years and there was a real feeling that 
people can't work from home and people thought I was nuts. And now since the pandemic, where we all had to work from home, regardless of where you are in the world, that process has massively been accelerated. So I wonder, have you seen a difference in the people's adaptability as a result, or have they become maybe more closed and more fearful of change as a result of this massive world event that we all experienced? I think the pandemic reminded us that we are constantly adapting to things. And it certainly was a lot to take on. You just imagine the compounding effects and we can remember what that was like. And to your question, there's this train of thought where we have this piece of change that's in motion and it continues to be in motion. So if you imagine to your question that if we went through change and we're keeping doing the changes and doing incremental changes, there inevitably becomes that idea of change fatigue and expecting people to just adapt. So all of a sudden it's, oh, as an example, if, if you got used to Microsoft Teams or you got used to, to Zoom, um, you should be able to go ahead here and just get used to this new platform. And while there is a time and a place to do that kind of thing, I'm a huge fan of, of using user-centered design and actually putting people at the center of change so that we can actually understand what it is that we want to solve for. Because if you think of, of where we're at now, activating all these different capabilities and platforms, sure, it might be good from one vantage point, but at the same time, if we all get those stakeholders together and start asking the question, really, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? Does it make sense for us to roll out this platform or does it actually just make sense to change our process? And to your question, what I'm finding a lot these days is that it's less about the platforms and it's more about the people. And in a lot of cases, it becomes the question of why are we doing it this way? And that platform actually isn't going to help what's going on here. We just got to fundamentally do things differently and start changing the way that we think. Very true. Very true. So if I think of your change fatigue, I thought that was an interesting way, but I wonder if there's also another side to that, which is change overwhelm. If you think of the world, we, was, we started talking about ChatGPT and there's this massive acceleration of technology and in the content space, uh, you can find 10 apps in five minutes that will do what humans have to do. And so sometimes I find, especially in the marketing world, we look at these apps and we're like, what are we supposed to do? Like, I can't keep up. I can't compete with that app. I could build my own, but I can't build it fast enough. How do you think people should tackle that change element of change overwhelm and keep ahead of the uh, game so that you're utilizing and leveraging the tools but you still have value as a human in your business, providing services to other humans. Yeah, I think there's two parts to touch on there. So the first is, I think, bringing it back to ChatGPT as an example. That's really the platform at the end of the day, and there's going to be many more. We've seen examples where uh, what's called generative artificial intelligence or generative AI, where it being the AI is composing things for you, that's something that's going to constantly evolve. And I think in response to what you're saying here, I, I think in the question, and, and I think I 
I, I agree with the premise, which is there's fatigue, but then there's also how do we empower ourselves to make it so that even as this change happens that may be out of our control, what can we do to learn from it? And so I think that's the second component, which is this. Really, I think it comes down to understanding what prompt engineering is. And so one of my last talks that I did, it was actually with accountants. And so you would think that accounting is very regimented and, and follows a specific process. And not to say that it doesn't, but what was very eye-opening for me in, in doing that presentation was just to see the intrigue and the interest in terms of matching that value to the things that are pain points and really trying to bridge those gaps. But at the end of the day, the folks that were asking all, all the questions were just like, okay, so what is a prompt and how do I craft a good prompt? And so what I left them with was this, really what it comes down to is PTO. It's not paid time off, but persona, task, output. So if you're able to set the persona and tell the GPT what it is that it's supposed to channel. So is that going to be an accountant? Is that going to be a bookkeeper? Is that going to be, let's say, a creative writer, marketing specialist, uh, et cetera? That's really the frame of reference and the frame of mind and the mindset that it's going to take on when it's generating content and, and interacting with you. The second one is actually coming up with tasks, interestingly enough. And the example that I always share in terms of prompt engineering is that if you think of going out on vacation and you send somebody an email, and I'm, I'm reminded of, of Dan's, Dan Martell's reference to this as well, where you just don't want to throw something over the fence and hope that somebody catches it. If, if you end up doing that in prompts, you're going to see the same thing too. So back to that example of if you're leaving on Friday, for two weeks of vacation, you want to make sure that all the outcomes are listed so that folks are actually able to execute on that while you're away without bugging you. The same thing I would argue applies when it comes time for developing tasks in prompts. So if you're able to list out those tasks and make it so that there's a bit of flexibility, I find that there's a lot more creative, but yet controlled outputs that ChatGPT is able to come up with. And speaking of outputs, there's just such a really cool way of saving time with things. So as an example, back to that email where you say, I got to get a report developed or something like that. In some cases, sure, there might be a report that the team needs to pull together while you're gone, but there's probably going to be some tables and some graphs and some charts. Even as I'm walking through tables, graphs, charts, we're all imagining, I would think, what that looks like. But funny enough, as the capabilities evolve of ChatGPT, it too is able to understand what that is, which I think is really exciting. So as we start thinking about what these different outputs are, it can take something that would be a really long paragraph and organize it into something very short and punchy and display it in a table, which is just so much easier to consume. And I'm, I'm just so excited to see what this looks like as those capabilities evolve. But I think back to your question in terms of what that means, I would certainly encourage everyone just to try to do their best to learn about what prompts are because prompt engineering is not going to be going away. And in fact, I would venture to guess that it's going to become compulsory for a lot of jobs that, that we're seeing just being completely disrupted by this technology. Amazing. So in terms of the, the future of humans and prompt engineering, so interacting with AI, 
give us a bit of what do you see as coming down the pipe? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I think we're going to continue seeing a lot of disruption. And I think that there's going to be a lot more integrations with AI. I think that offers a lot of promise, certainly. But I also think that back to the book, I think that there's some warnings that, that we should heed in terms of what that looks like and how we should really be doing what we can to put some measured thought into things. Because to, to bring that back to the example of before, let's say there's an invoicing process that we've done for a really long time. And we decide at the end that we just got to change a couple things and then it makes the process more efficient. That was a really good example, I think, of a controlled environment where we have our team members working together and we come to an agreement of what this looks like. If you fast forward and now start supplementing AI into the equation, sure, it's really great that a lot of that stuff can be generated or recommendations developed, but I think we're going to have to be very specific in terms of what capabilities AI is going to be taking when we're just going to that default mindset of automation. Because while I'm a huge advocate of, of automation and I do automation all the time and try to do as much as I can, there's just some stuff that I want to make sure that I'm having some sort of control over, whether or not that's an approval or whether or not that's me kickstarting something. Granted, that's taking away and not really buying back my time in the sense of I'm getting involved <laughs> in some things. I'm sure some, some would be laughing at the fact that I'm saying, no, like you, you should have it so that you uh, buy back your time that way. But I, I don't know when it comes to like very large decisions, I think that there's going to need to be some sort of oversight and control over that. And, and I think that when we think about what this looks like from a regulatory perspective, just to geek out from the, the, yeah. the regulator perspective and the government perspective, you can certainly delegate things to people. That's been happening for a really long time. However, I don't think that it's going to be wise, nor will it be allowed for you to end up delegating uh, accountability to something that you can't actually talk to. Mm, mm, mm. So that's just my two cents of where I think that's going to go. But at the same time, as regulators figure out what's happening, as individual small and medium-sized businesses and even large enterprises are figuring out what do we do with this thing, I think the only thing that we can control back to your question about change is just really getting an understanding of what this technology is and just experimenting with it. If it's five minutes a day of just experimenting with prompts and getting better at prompts, that positions you very well to be an influencer or, or a subject matter authority at your organization, which I think is really exciting. And those people that I think lean into that option are going to see uh, huge returns. Amazing. Do you think that there is a real need for regulatory and compliance aspect of AI? Or do you think that's just government's big brother trying to control the evolution of artificial intelligence? I think that's what we're trying to find, right? There's always that balance. And the, the thing about government, and I think that they would even be the first to admit this, is once you put something in motion and put it in writing and then lock it in, it becomes very difficult to update that. Um, grant, granted, regulation is something that's a little bit more flexible as opposed to laws. Uh, not to go into a civics kind of piece here, but to your question, I, I think that's really something that we got to meet our regulators at. Because in, in some instances, we've seen where this technology is so disruptive and so different from what folks have been used to is that there's an education component. 
So I think that at this point in time, this is really our education moment where folks are at least getting onto equal footing of understanding what this technology is so that we can then start thinking about what this looks like in the context of coming up with some sort of guardrails or regulation. Because I, I think it's it's something that often comes up where, uh, and I think it was in your question, where sometimes things do get overregulated, especially if it's too disruptive. And now we're, we're having to play this game of always having to rewrite what was written, let's say, six weeks ago because technology ended up changing it. However, I think that there's some key tenets that we are able to land on as guardrails and should be our focus going forward here to make sure that as these technologies are going and evolving, that at least we have some trust in the fact that there's some tenets that we're able to anchor ourselves to. And I think that's just so important. And I think that mutual understanding and that mutual agreement is, is going to be something that's going to be very tough to achieve, but I think it's worth doing for sure. But I also think that it's something that is a great opportunity for us to pull different thoughts and opinions together at the same table to at least land on something. Kind of brings me to maybe the closing question around where you think AI fits into our education system. So obviously, traditionally, education has been very much about repetition and memory and remember as many facts as you can and then write essays about it. Whereas now, you could just go and pop it in chat GPT, please answer this question. And it's been hugely helpful, even in grant writing. So how do you think do you have any thoughts around how we could better leverage AI in our children's education as opposed to banning it as a kind of a, a standard response? It, it's funny that you should ask that question because for, I think it's going on about a decade now, I've been a volunteer coach with our university here at, at the University of Regina with the business faculty. And since this whole idea of ChatGPT came in on the scene, it was hugely disruptive. And I saw that firsthand on campus. There was the faculty that was trying to figure out what to do with this. Other institutions were trying to figure out what to do with this. But at the same time, I kept coming back to this thought that A, the horse has already left the barn as the saying goes, and we really can't go back. So now the question becomes, how do we shift our thinking? And back to your question about mindset, how do we make it so that we can use this technology as a supplement as opposed to a replacement of something that we should be using in academia, which is creative thinking and making sure that we are thinking critically about things and not just having it so that something is output for us. What I mean by that is, as an example, even just the other day when I was chatting with, with someone who's doing a research paper, I said, don't take the, the bait with ChatGPT being able to help out with that. I think that I'm a firm believer in you got to go through the exercise of writing. There's something about writing where you're getting your thoughts on paper and, and it's definitely crushing. I will admit that as a co-author myself, it's crushing to get that feedback on something that you've written, but at the same time, it's all part of the process. And I think if we have generative AI just coming in and, and doing that, I think it, it just ruins the journey. And I think that instead, 
some of the administrative tasks that are just so boring and take so much time away, let's say citations. Generative AI is great at citations. And if you're able to come up with a list of citations and have it refactor that for you, to me, that should be fair game because it does two things. Number one, frees up your time and buys back your time to focus on what matters, which could be making the edits to the document based off of what feedback you received. But I think secondly, it's reinforcing academic integrity. And I think in having it, it being the AI, pull together, let, let's say, a bibliography or work cited list based off of what you have, I think is a really great use case and a very basic use case of where that could come into play. However, I think it gets a little bit more, I think, interesting. And what we're trying to find out here over time is what that looks like in terms of having a, a sort of co-author of your research paper and what that means for academic integrity. I think they're still trying to figure that out. But that example that I shared about the bibliography and, and the work cited, I think, are two really great examples, especially when it comes to academics that, that folks can use as an example use case. Great answer. <laughs> I love that you've got that real life experience, especially because you're at the university and seeing it firsthand, as opposed to I'm seeing it from a parent's point of view with my daughter who's in high school and seeing how she essentially how the school is either embracing it or not. So that is very interesting. I think we still have a long way to go in terms of how we use artificial intelligence and allow the next generation to use it within their learning and education. So thank you very much for that. So Brennan, where can we find you and interact with your information and your book? Where are the best places on the web to find you? You bet. The best place you can find me is on Instagram. I'm at Brenzens, B-R-E-N-Z-E-N-S. And in fact, just as a, a quick uh, mention here, if you found what I was talking about, especially on the cyber front valuable, feel free to drop me a DM, mention mention this podcast in, in the DM, just so that I, I know about uh, the, the no opt-in here. I'll just send you directly the link in order to download the checklist. And I would be happy to share that with you. If you're not on Instagram, you can find me online, brennanschmidt.ca. So that's B-R-E-N-E-N Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T dot C-A. Wonderful. We will also put your links in the show notes as well. But it has been wonderful and really intriguing thoughts and aspects, I think, that we've covered today. I'd love to dig deeper and deeper, but we'll be here all day. Thank you so much for joining me on the Profitable Podcast today by Chip. I look forward to hearing far more from you and following you on Instagram. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you so much.